Our scripture today comes from the book of Matthew, uh, chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. It's found on page 1531 on your pew Bibles. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell them that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Uh, the story which Matthew tells here is really interesting because it's clear in context that there are two very different types of stories being told at the same time. The narrator and Jesus are trying to tell one kind of story, but many of the people in the crowds are trying to tell a different kind of story. If you've seen the movie The Princess Bride, and you should, it's easily in my top 10 favorite movies, um, it might help you recognize it. In the movie, there's a kid who's sick in bed, and his grandpa comes over to take care of him. His grandpa brings over a book called The Princess Bride and tells him the story, but the kid is already wary of the name. The Princess Bride sounds like a girl's book, doesn't it? you. And there's all this stuff about true love, which sounds like the kind of thing that would go in a girl's book. Slowly, though, the grandson gets really into the book, until at one point the villain in the story looks like he's going to get away, and the grandson interrupts the whole thing and gets mad at it. He tells the grandpa that the story has to have the villain get punished. The story, this story has a very similar dynamic going on. Jesus and Matthew want to tell one kind of story, but some of the characters are telling a different kind of story. And the main question of Holy Week is who wins? Will Jesus' vision win out or will the crowds? Here's what I mean. The city of Jerusalem has been through a lot over the course of about 450 years. It was never the seat of government and had instead been ruled over by foreign rulers for centuries. On many occasions, it was sacked and invaded and it changed hands over and over. The Jewish people had seen nothing but oppressors ruling over them for many years. Every time a king entered the city, he entered on a war horse, either to cause destruction or to intimidate people into peace. Worse still, for the Jews, this king was never their king. It was always the king of some foreign nation that only cared about Jerusalem for taxes and tribute that he could extract, or for the prestige he could get for owning the city and the entire people group. But Zechariah prophesied that one day things would finally go better for the people of Jerusalem. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation, 
humble and mounted on a donkey, on a foal, the colt, the foal of a donkey. The Jewish people would have their own king, not some foreigner who doesn't care about them. And he wouldn't be mounted on a war horse, but he'd be mounted on a donkey, an animal used for peaceful trade, not exactly the kind of animal you'd ride into battle. Peace was finally coming to Jerusalem, and on terms that was actually good for them. But the Jewish people had a different idea from a Zechariah and Matthew about how this would happen. The Jews pretty much forgot the very next verse in Zechariah. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This king would cut off the chariot and war horse from Jerusalem and from Ephraim. In other words, he would reduce their own army and instead speak peace to the ends of the earth. This is the vision that Matthew, the author of our passage, has in mind for what's happening when Jesus enters Jerusalem. Jesus is the one who comes to Jerusalem to buy peace for his people with God and with all the other nations by his own blood. And Jesus sees it this way too. That's why it's so important that Jesus comes to Jerusalem on a donkey and not on a war horse. But the people in this passage clearly have a different vision for what's going on when Jesus is entering Jerusalem. They thought they would have a king who was a lot like Caesar, but actually their Caesar. He would fight and kill until there was nobody left to oppose them, and then there would be peace. It would be peace won through violence. If you've ever wondered why they're waving palms, here's why. In 141 BC, the Jews were at war with the Greeks and trying to liberate themselves, and they actually succeeded. The Greek king that oppressed them and defiled the temple and the whole city of Jerusalem died, and all the Greeks were expelled from the city. The leader of the Jews at the time, Simon Maccabee, came in on a war horse and cleansed the temple from all these Greek impurities. Sound familiar? The Jewish people greeted him as their ruler, and they had just celebrated a Jewish holiday called Sukkot which is still celebrated today, where they go outside the city and live in little booths made of tree branches. So they took their palm tree branches that they had already cut down and waved them for Simon. And Simon became the first prince of a short-lived Jewish kingdom. The Jewish people loved Simon because he violently expelled the invaders and set up a kingdom of their own. And the name Simon became the most common name in Judea for about 300 years, even long after the Jewish kingdom had fallen. And this was still true during the New Testament. You read it, and there's Simons all over the place. There's 10 unique Simons mentioned in the New Testament alone. So central to this passage is this huge conflict of visions. Jesus and the author of the book think that what's happening is the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy about a future king who comes on a donkey meant for peace and who speaks peace to all the nations of the world whose rule isn't based on threats or fear or war, but based on transforming love. They think what's happening is that Jesus is coming to fulfill the promised Israel, to make a kingdom that includes every nation and people in the whole world, by suffering to liberate them from bondage to sin. But the crowds think something different is happening, and they're trying to speak it into existence too. They're waving palm fronds and laying down their cloaks on the road because they're thinking that Jesus is going to be a repeat of a past king, one who violently throws out all the people from foreign nations and cleanses the temple of its foreign impurities. Just like in The Princess Bride, there's two different visions for how this story is going to go 
and Holy Week is how the, this is the story of how Jesus chose his vision. And if you've ever watched The Princess Bride, yeah, the story is a lot like that dy dynamic. They're arguing over what type of story is being told, and it's hard to blame the crowds. They're out for vengeance. They want to see themselves rewarded and their enemies punished. And deep down, I think it's hard for that not to be the case for ourselves. It feels really good sometimes to see your enemies punished, especially if they really deserve it. It feels really good to see your friends rewarded. And yes, deep down, I think we have a tendency to be most pleased by those things when it is violent. It gives us a ton of dopamine, which is the chemical that makes us happy and pleased. But you can get addicted to dopamine, and it can make you do things that aren't actually righteous and only make things worse, like violently punishing your enemies, but which feel really good at the time. But that's not justice or love, and it doesn't make for a good place to live. But Jesus wasn't out for dopamine, and he calls us not to be out for it either. He had every opportunity to start a violent revolt that liberates Israel from Rome. But he didn't because that kingdom would never lead to peace. It'd be one more dopamine-addicted kingdom that destroyed another dopamine-addicted kingdom before finally being destroyed by another dopamine-addicted kingdom. Instead, we're supposed to use our logic and wisdom to think about whether what we're doing is right or wrong, instead of just rewarding friends and punishing enemies. Because the world has been after dopamine this whole time and hasn't gotten them anywhere close to peace and justice. And no one ever said that peace and justice were supposed to make us feel good all the time. Just two chapters later, Jesus says something that's bitterly ironic. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And notice, they literally just said to him in this passage, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hoping for a violent invader that satisfies their dopamine. But here he says that, because they did not recognize the king who comes for peace, because they did not follow the prince of peace, and they won't recognize him until he comes in judgment. And it makes sense. If you can't follow a king who brings peace, and you won't recognize him until violence comes, then you'll only recognize him when violence comes. As Jesus says in Luke, if only you knew the things that made for peace. If only you knew that peace was not won through violence and hatred and dopamine, but through righteousness and love. Peace is often won in ways that bring shame to ourselves and really don't feel good, because we have to sacrifice ourselves for our neighbors. There's two stories and two visions being given in this story, and only one of them is right. As a church, we're also trying to figure out our vision for our future and the story we're telling about who we are. Let's take this opportunity to consider whether our vision is more like the vision of Jesus or the vision of the crowds. The crowds call Jesus the son of David, which is clearly meant to say that Jesus is the rightful king of Israel, who comes to liberate Israel from captivity and exile. But Jesus isn't going to do it in the way they're hoping. They were right to recognize Jesus as king, but they failed to understand that the true king is the suffering servant, 
who gives himself up in love for his people and suffers death instead of inflicting pain. Our church is trying to figure out its vision for its leadership. It can be really easy to be impressed by the kind of leader that promises us to take us back to the glory days or to take us to some glorious future by obtaining this institutional power or something. But the biggest question is, does this leader love us? And is he willing to put his own interests inside in love for us? Because that's the kind of leadership that Jesus showed on the cross. And that's what a rightful king looks like. In other words, it's easy to fall for someone who looks like Simon Maccabee when we really should be looking for Jesus. The crowds yell, Hosanna, which means save us. And they were right to yell that to the rightful king of Israel. That's his role. But they were calling for Jesus to save them from their enemies when Jesus came to save them from themselves. They thought that Jesus would drive out the Romans and the foreigners that kept them from having their own visible political kingdom. But instead, Jesus came to liberate them from idolatry and evil. And that includes saving them from the exact same hatred to, that drove them to yell, save us, in the, in the first place. It can be frustrating being the church in a community that doesn't seem to appreciate us. It can be frustrating when it seems like no matter what we do, nobody wants to come here. We know we've been frustrated in the past, and it's likely that God, if God really decides to bless us with the numbers in the future, then it probably won't be until after we've banged our head against the wall for a long while without obvious results. Our church most likely won't grow overnight. We can hope for the solution that provides the most dopamine, the Simon Maccabee route, which is where all, all people all of a sudden see what we're doing here and come out in huge droves and we outgrow the facility in a year. But that's not gonna happen and we're gonna get frustrated if we just wait for it. Or we can live into the vision and story of Jesus, which doesn't think, how do we get the community to appreciate the church, but thinks, how do we as the church serve the community? We don't look at the community and think, what's wrong with this community that we are, they aren't coming to us? Don't they know that they need us? We think, how do we make our church indispensable to this community? Because frustration will only make it harder to serve the people in our community like we're supposed to. And nobody wants to be part of a frustrated group. In the Jesus route, we live with genuine affection for the people around us and not frustration. And we make it obvious that when you come to DCOB, you're loved. And they see that there's a different kind of group at Drainsville Church of the Brethren. In the Simon Maccabee route, we become bitter when we don't see results, and we grow to hate the very people we were supposed to serve. But the Jesus route makes us take a look at ourselves and consider whether we're doing something wrong. It makes us think about how we can deny ourselves to serve the community rather than make the community come to us. Drainsville could grow in any number of ways and still not be effective in serving the Lord. Because as much as we want DCOB to grow and to continue for another 100 years, the main questions we have to ask ourselves isn't, is DCOB growing, but is God here at DCOB? When people come here, are they encountering God when they talk to us? Are we treating each other as Jesus would treat us to the point that they can see Jesus when we, see, when we talk to them? The crowds were right. Jesus really is the king. But he isn't the kind of king that Simon Maccabee was. And you might be wondering, why should I follow Jesus and not the next person who looks like Simon Maccabee? 
What Simon does looks exciting and plays right into our dopamine. Well, for one thing, the things you do for Jesus will actually last. Because they were backed up by God himself, who has promised that the gates of hell will never prevail against our church. There's a reason that even I had barely heard of Simon Maccabee before I started doing research for the sermon. But I assume all of you have heard of Jesus, right? Following Jesus is also exactly what we were always meant to do. And it's frankly boring to follow Simon Maccabee. Because all he ever gives you is exactly what you want. But Jesus calls us to change and become better. And shows us that what we do isn't always what we should want. And what, what shows us that how to be happier and more fulfilled. Like the grandpa in Princess Bride, he shows us that there are better stories than the ones we could come up with ourselves. In Jesus is the fullness of life and the perfect communication of God's nature. The one who really gives us our life and has the wisdom to show us what life really means. There's plenty of Simon Maccabees out there. There's plenty of things that are happy to give us exactly what we want and be safe enough that they won't change us. Social media, politics, video games, drugs, food, TV. They're all addictive substances which might have their own proper place, but can suck you into a fake world where you can get your dopamine hit and never have to change. But Jesus calls us to adventure and to interact with the real world. The question is, are we ready to follow him? As N.T. Wright asks, are we ready not only to spread our cloaks on the road in front of him, to do the showy and flashy thing, but also now to follow him into trouble, controversy, trial, and death? Because following God is an adventure. It really is. But it's not an adventure in the sense of a nice walk on a sunny day out into nature, by which we mean a carefully curated park where we have a nice time, then go home and continue our normal life. It's not a video game that gives you a sense of adventure without, while you're safely on your couch. It's an adventure in the sense of Frodo struggling up the hills of Mount Doom, bearing the suffering and pain of the world with the help of his friends, sacrificing himself in hope of a better world. It's the kind of adventure that makes you a different person, a better person, who's dared to see the worst in the world and was rewarded by seeing the best. It's the kind of adventure that makes it so you can never really go home and continue your normal life, and that's a good thing. The adventure will make our lives better, but not in the sense of making it easier or more cushy. It'll give you a sense of meaning and purpose to venture out into the unknown and follow Jesus where he goes, not knowing where the next step will take you. And in that way, our adventure looks a lot like the adventure of Jesus. Because you'll be doing what you were always meant to do. Sacrificing yourself in love and faithfulness to God and neighbor. And making yourself a vessel for the presence of God. And in the end, no matter what it looks like at the time, every bit of work we do for God and his real kingdom will last. While every effort we take to grab at a worldly kind of kingdom, based on violence and corruption is already fake even now and will certainly pass away. So this Holy Week, let's follow the example of Jesus. He could have done the easy thing and recruited a bunch of people to do exactly what they always wanted to do in the first place, to burn down the city and kick the Romans out. But instead he calls us to a different kind of story. And sometimes it's not the story we want. 
but it's a story that changes us and makes us into the kind of people that can actually appreciate a good story when it comes, and not one that just engages our dopamine addiction. Jesus calls us to a different kind of adventure, and the moment we step into it, we can't help but change. Let's pray. God, we were not wise enough to recognize your kingdom when it came, but you have promised us an adventure this week, which is to enter into a story that we would never want, but which is the only story that's good for us. Use this holy week to change us so that we can appreciate what is truly good and noble and true. Amen.